Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our time together. Father, I ask you to fill me with the Holy Spirit. I ask you to speak through me. I pray you'd make the Word of God come alive. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that we wouldn't study prophecy just to study prophecy. I pray we'd study prophecy and make application to our own lives in this day and time that we live in today. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we praise you. Be glorified in this place today, not only in this room, Lord, but with our children, with our teenagers, with our adults, with our choir and orchestra and our worship uh, ministry. Lord, from, from one end of this building to the other, I pray the Spirit of God would be all over everything that takes place in this church tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's a, a summary statement that, that I think is a very important statement. It sort of capsules for us what chapter 36 is about and what chapter 37 is about. Notice, Ezekiel clearly envisioned the transformed land of Israel in chapter 36. In chapter 37, he speaks about the national resurrection of Israel. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. Some scholars have assumed that chapter 37 is all about physical resurrection, the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of people who are believers. That's not what it's about. It's a picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel that has been sent to the four corners of the earth for, for around 2,000 years, and God in his supernatural power and with his supernatural purpose has brought them back into the land of Israel, and the, the nation of Israel will always be here. God says in Jeremiah that as long as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, then there will always be a nation of Israel. So you need to understand that, Okay. I want you to look at verses 15 to 17. Remember we said last week that one way you could tell how this chapter was laid out, look at, at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of dry bones. So he said the hand of the Lord was upon me. Look at verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me saying, do, do you see the division there? It's a clear division in this chapter, verses 1 to 14 and verses 15 to 28. Now I want you to look at verse 15. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, and you son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel and his companions. Then join them for yourself, one to another, into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Now, at God's instruction here, Ezekiel, the prophet of God, 
was to act out a very important illustration for the exiles there in Babylon. He was to take two sticks. One of those sticks represented the southern kingdom of Judah. Basically, it was two of the tribes. It was Judah and Benjamin that made up the, the southern part uh, of, uh, of the covenant people. And then the, the other ten tribes were what were called Israel or Ephraim or Joseph, okay? So he was to take these two sticks and he's to write uh, about the ten tribes, Joseph or Ephraim on, on this stick and, and Judah or, or Israel on this stick. And he's to take them and put them together. Now you say, why put them together? Because it's a picture of what God is going to do in the last days. Now, uh, in Ezekiel's day, the northern kingdom had been conquered and destroyed for some 150 years. 722 uh, B.C., the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, Joseph or Ephraim it's called, and, and defeated them and took them into exile. And you remember what they did? They sent some of the Assyrians back into the land that the, the northern ten tribes had occupied, and they intermarried. And then when you get to the New Testament, they are the what? The Samaritans, right? And the Samaritans are hated by the Jews, and the Jews are hated by the Samaritans in the New Testament. Yet it, it's interesting here that God still considered this people from the, 12, from the 10 tribes in the northern kingdom, he still considered them to be a part of the covenant people of God, even though they were scattered throughout Assyria. In Isaiah 49, verses 5 to 6, Isaiah the prophet wrote this, And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob. By the way, the servant motif that you find there in uh, Isaiah refers to the Messiah. He's referring to the Messiah, the servant. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Now, the tribes of Jacob included all 12 of the tribes, Okay and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, again, let me make sure you understand. Joseph represents the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. The tribe of Ephraim was used as a synonym for these, these ten tribes because Ephraim was the strongest and most influential tribe in the northern kingdom. By the way, Jeroboam, who led the rebellion against Rehoboam, Rehoboam was Solomon's son, 
And the kingdom was together under David and under Solomon. It was not split. And yet um, Rehoboam acted foolishly. I mean very foolishly. He didn't listen to the more wise elderly leaders in Israel. He listened to his buddies. And he made a foolish decision. And Jeroboam led the northern ten tribes to rebel against uh, Rehoboam and the, the southern kingdom. And, and the tribe, Israel was split in two. It had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Now, he says in verse 17, Then join them for yourself one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The exiles there in, in Babylon must have been uh, mystified about this, this picture, this illustration, and, and what it represented. Because to them, the northern kingdom had disappeared. It was gone. It was never to be seen again. Now, I'm going to tell you, folks, you need to remember that one thing you, you need to, to see as we study prophecy, God can do anything he wants to do. Nothing is impossible with God. He can even take ten tribes that had been sent into Assyria and it basically disappeared and, and, and became part of Assyria, basically, and, and yet he could bring them back into the land that's called the promised land. And he can bring them and reunite them with the southern kingdom. Now, it's interesting that these two sticks, you know, Mormonism has taken this picture of these two sticks and, and has used it to teach a heresy, an absolute blatant heresy. Joseph Smith taught that the, the, the stick uh, representing Judah re referenced the Bible, our Bible. And he taught that the stick uh, referenced by Ephraim, or Joseph represented the, the ten tribes. He called them the ten lost tribes. They're not lost. We've already seen that, right? And, and that you take uh, the, the, uh, the Book of Mormon and you take the Bible and you put them together and you have a total revelation from God. That's what Joseph Smith taught. Now, I want you to look at me real, real close. When I was pastoring... First Baptist Richland. There was a real strong contingent of Mormons in Richland. And, and there were some in my church who thought that Mormons were Christians. Now look at me. Mormons are not Christians. They are not Christians. They call themselves Christians, but they're not. You say, Pastor, how can you be so uh, bold and audacious to make a statement like that. I'll tell you why. Because they believe in a different Jesus. A different Jesus. You know what they believe about Jesus? They believe and they teach that Jesus was a man who became God. What do we believe? The Bible teaches that Jesus is God who became man 
and yet he was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, there is a world of difference in those two beliefs. Mormonism teaches that Jesus and, and Lucifer are brothers. They're spirit brothers, okay? Mormonism teaches that if you're, if you're good, it's all based on works. If you're good, you can be your own. If you're a man, you can be your own God, and you can have your own world and rule your own world, and your wife can be your goddess, that's Mormonism. Now, let me ask you, does that sound like Christianity? Does that sound like biblical Christianity? It's not. Now, now I want to tell you something. We better be very careful and make sure our kids and our grandkids understand the difference because it's easy to get hooked into a, a cult, and we've got to stay away from that. We've got to be discerning. We've got to know, how, how do you protect yourself? Know the Bible. Know the Bible. Know it. Now, this section begins with a command to form this symbolic action, and then he asks a series of questions, one question after the other, to, to help us understand what that illustration means in a very practical way. Now, let's look at the meaning of the joint sticks. When the sons of your people speak to you, now remember, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. And he's saying, look, when, when the Jewish exiles begin to ask you questions about this illustration of these two sticks being made into one, um, and, and they say, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? And God tells him exactly what to say. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph. All right, now let me ask you a question. What is the stick of Joseph? The 10 northern tribes. Taken into Assyrian captivity, the southern kingdom of Judah have been taken into Babylonian captivity. And, and he says, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, Ephraim, the strongest tribe of, of the northern kingdom, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, the southern kingdom, and make one stick, and they will be one in whose hand? That, that word, my, is capitalized. That's why I love the, the King James, not the King James, the New American Standard Version of the Bible. It capitalizes the pronouns that refer to God. I don't know, I, I just think that's a, a, a reverence type thing. God deserves to have his pronouns capitalized. So will you not declare to us what these mean? Now, remember, it had been 150 years at this time when Ezekiel wrote this. It had been 150 years since the northern kingdom, the, 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 the ten tribes of the northern kingdom had gone into Assyrian captivity. And then make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. I love Douglas Stewart made this observe, uh, observation. He said, the north and the south of Israel had not been unified politically 
since the revolt of Jeroboam after the death of Solomon, look at this, in 931 B.C., nearly 350 years prior to this prophecy. 350 years prior to this prophecy, they had been joined together. For 350 years, they had been separated. Since 722 B.C., when the north lost its political identity and was annexed by the Assyrians, and especially since 586 B.C., when Judah had also fallen into Babylonian exile, the idea of a reunified Israel of the sort that David and Solomon had ruled over in the ninth century would have seemed ludicrous to any observer of international events in Ezekiel's day. You, you know, a, a lot of people, when they hear teaching on prophecy, and they look at it and they say, this is absolutely crazy. There's no way this could ever happen. Hey, I'm going to ask you a question. Can you imagine what it was like for believers in the 1930s? Th think about it. Believers in the 1930s, they study prophecy, and they read this prophecy that Israel would be back in the land. And what's happening in the 1930s, 1940s? They're being gassed. The Holocaust. Six million Jews were brutally murdered by Hitler and his henchmen. And yet there's a prophecy laying out there in Ezekiel that says that God is going to bring his covenant people back into the promised land. It must have looked absolutely impossible to them. But was it impossible? No. In 1948, May the 14th, 1948, Israel, for the first time in 2,000 years, was declared to be a nation. Nothing is impossible with God. You may be facing some impossible-looking stuff in your life tonight. It could be a disease. It could be a, a family problem. It, it could be a lot of different things. Maybe you've got a kid that's a, a prodigal way out there away from God, and you're hurting. And sometimes you wonder, is there any hope? I'm telling you, friend, listen to me very carefully. With God, anything is possible. Never stop praying. Never stop believing. Always believe that God can do the impossible because he can. Okay? He's proved it over and over again. Now, Hosea, another prophet, stated that the children of Israel and the children of Judah would be gathered together and would appoint for themselves one head. Look at Hosea chapter 1 verse 11. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together. And they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now, Zechariah also spoke of this time. In Zechariah chapter 10, verse 6, he wrote, I will strengthen, this is words of God, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. Do you, see, do you see the two there? Judah is what? 
southern kingdom. Joseph is what? The northern kingdom. Two tribes in the south and ten tribes in the north. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. And I will bring them back. God says, I'm going to bring them back because I've had compassion on them. Did they deserve it? Look, did they deserve it? Look at me. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It, it is the grace and mercy of Almighty God that allows this to become a reality. By the way, that's the way you were saved. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the only way anybody in the world can be saved. Now, look at Zechariah again. Because I've had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Now look, look at verses 21 to 23, the promise of restoration and unification. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. Now let's hit a pause there for just a moment. Hey, James, if you'll shoot that picture up there for me. I want to say the return of the Jewish people to the promised land, to Israel, is an absolute miracle. It's a miracle. Listen, when Great Britain ended its mandate in Palestine and removed its troops around 1947, 1948, you know how many Jews were living in the land of Israel? 650,000. 650,000. I want you to keep that in mind. In 1948, there were 650,000 Jews living in the land of Israel. In 2006, for the first time in 1900 years, Israel became home to the largest Jewish community in the world, surpassing the Jewish population in the United States. From the 650,000 who returned when the Jewish state was founded in 1948, in 2006 the population of Israel had swelled to approximately 5.4 million. Today, today, there's approximately 7 million Jews living in the land of Israel. Now what does God say right here? Let, let, let's look at it again. If you notice... God says, say to them, chapter 37, verse 21 to 23, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel from where? From among the nations, from Russia, from Argentina, from America, from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, all of Jews from all over the world have been repatriating back into Israel. You, you say, well, that's a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. God is drawing them back to their land. Listen, 
Gary Frazier made this statement. He said, you cannot find the ancient neighbors of the Jews anywhere. I don't care where you go. I don't care what continent you travel to. You will never find a Philistine. They don't exist anymore. You will never find a Moabite. They don't exist anymore. You will never find a Hittite or an Ammonite. You will never find an Edomite. They do not exist anymore. And yet, with these ancient peoples having disappeared from history and from the face of the earth, yet here we have the Jews, as God promised, returning to their land in droves. Now, how do you explain that? I know how I explain it. That's of God. That's God. In, on July the 5th, 1950, the Jewish Knesset, their ruling body, passed a law called the Law of Return. It's the Law of Return. It grants every Jew in the world the right to settle in Israel. The Law of Return. By the way, that's the July the 5th, 1950 was celebrated because that was the, the day of uh, Herschel's uh, death. Remember, he was the, the, the first leader of the Zionist movement, the back to, to Israel movement. Now, Jews today, even today, are coming from all over the world back to Israel to escape poverty. I'm going to tell you what. They're also coming back to escape anti-Semitism. This is a huge issue in our world today. I just want to touch on that for, for, for just a moment with you. The statistics since October the 7th, 2023, are absolutely off the charts. Anti-Semitic events in the United States have increased 400% since Hamas attacked Israel on October the 7th, 400%. And that's on top of the chilling pre-October the 7th statistic that our national Jewish community representing 2.4% of the U.S. population accounts for more than 60% of the religious hate crimes committed in America. 2.4% the Jewish population counts for, for America, and yet they're, they're victims of 60% of the hate crimes, religious hate crimes that take place in America. Government leaders told Congress last week that the threat to the security and safety of the nation's Jewish community is rising to historic levels. In Salt Lake City, a synagogue was forced to evacuate after receiving a bomb threat. In St. Louis, Missouri, a swastika was spray-painted on the side of a truck. In London, a kosher restaurant was vandalized. The first four days of the conflict there in Israel saw a surge of over 300% in anti-Semitic incidents in the United Kingdom. 
pro-Palestinian protests around the world have sometimes taken on anti-Jewish overtones, and that's saying it lightly. Do you, do you, I, want to, I want to remind you what I told you, I think, last week. When, Jew, when, when people march in Washington, D.C., like they did this past weekend, and they march on college campuses, and they say, from the, re- from the river to the sea, free Palestine. I-, I want you to understand what they're saying, what it means. It means they want to wipe the nation of Israel off the map. They want to wipe them off the map. To them, the only good Jew is a dead Jew. That's dangerous stuff, folks. And it's happening before our very eyes. In Sydney, Australia, unverified footage distributed by the Australian Jewish Association showed a group of protesters outside the Sydney Opera House shouting, gas the Jews. That's happening on our college campuses. They're crying out, gas the Jews. Jewish students at a university here in America have had to hide in a library in fear for their lives. Jewish children in Germany are afraid to go to school. And parents warn their children not to wear the Star of David. A BBC headline read, British Jews are full of fear like I've never seen before. Representative Uh, Rashida Tlaib posted a 2024 election warning to President Biden featuring crowds chanting from the river to the sea, free Palestine. According to a Harvard-Harris poll, 51% of Americans ages 18 to 24 believe Hamas was justified in its brutal terrorist attacks on innocent Israeli citizens on October the 7th. Did you hear that statistic? 51% of Americans ages 18 to 24 believe Hamas was justified in their brutal, sadistic terrorist activities. Now, when you see all this happening, I want you to understand, it's a clear indication that we are living in the last of the last days. I, I, I believe with all my heart that we are seeing signs come together that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 24, and they're coming together not just one every once in a while, but they're coming together in groups. They're coming together in groups. And you remember Jesus said it's like the birth pangs of a woman. Jesus said that, that, that when he, he comes back, the last of the last days will be like the birth pangs of a woman. I, I, now, I'm not a woman. I know that. You ladies, don't throw anything at me. But I know I've I watched my wife give birth to two of our children. I was in there. The last one she had naturally, I saw it with my own eyes. So those birth pangs are far apart. 
They're not too bad. And then they get closer and harder, closer and harder, closer, harder, closer, harder, uh, until the, the woman about to give birth wants to rip her husband's head off. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm going to tell you, when it gets like that, when it gets like that, you know that the time of our Lord's return is near. And I believe we're seeing that happen before our very eyes. Now, why would I say that? Jesus said over and over again in the New Testament, make sure you're ready. Make sure you're ready. That's why I said this past Sunday in the message. You know, I had plenty of time. I I had 20 years to get ready to commit myself to Christ. Do you realize that we may not have 20 days to get ready to give our hearts to Christ and commit, commit to Christ? We may not have 20 days to read our Bibles and pray and serve Jesus the way he deserves to be served. So if you, if you need to be saved, you need to be saved today. If you need to get right with God, you need to get right with God today. If you need to up your game spiritually, you need to up your game spiritually today. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have next week. You may not have next month. You may not have next year. That's what all of this means, folks. So let's go back to our, our text, the promise of restoration. So chapter 37, verses 21 to 23. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their what? Their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from their dwelling places which, in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people and I will be their God. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Now, when he talks about bringing the Jewish people from among the nations. You got to understand that's a lot broader than just bringing them from Babylon or bringing them from Assyria. I mean, God is, is picturing something that will take place in the last days. And I believe we're seeing it take place before our very eyes. And I'll make them one nation. This is totally different than what happened in the days of Ezra, Zerubbabel, and, and Nehemiah, God would bring the Jewish people as a whole back to the land of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. They will no longer be two nations, no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Now, obviously, we talked that, about this just a moment ago. This, when you get to the New Testament days, we see this has not been fulfilled in the New Testament days because Jews hated Samaritans. Do you, you remember when Jesus was going to Galilee and 
And, and Jesus had no trouble walking through Samaria, right? And, and his disciples, boy, they, they had some problems with that, didn't they? Especially James and John, the sons of thunder, okay? And, and, but Jesus had a purpose. He went through Samaria so he could go to the well there at Sychar, because there was a Samaritan woman who was broken into a thousand pieces and she needed redemption. And Jesus sent the disciples into the city to get something to eat. And he stayed there by the well. And this Samaritan woman came out to get water in the middle of the day. Now that tells you something. Because women didn't go to get water in the middle of the day. They went to get water in the evening or the morning when it was cooler. But she went in the middle of the day because she was so ashamed and so mistreated by the people in the community because she had had five husbands and the guy she was with now was not her husband. She was living with a guy. And yet Jesus, the Son of God, showed such compassion to her and offered her living water. He said, if you take this living water that I have to offer, you'll never thirst again. And you know what? That lady believed in Jesus. And she went running back into the city. You know what she told the city? She said, I think I found the Messiah. And they had a revival. They had a, they had a sure enough Billy Graham-style revival there in the city of Sychar. And Jesus stayed there a while and taught and preached and people came to faith in Christ, part of the kingdom. It was an amazing thing. But the Bible looks forward to the day when there will be no more division among the, the, the people of Israel. There will be no more hatred over those who are from a different tribe or a different section, the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. You know, God's will for any group who are part of his kingdom is unity. Unity is big in the kingdom of God. In Psalm 133, verse 1, the Bible says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, speaking to the church, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve, look at this, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, it is God's will that His people dwell together in unity, not bickering and fighting and fussing and, and complaining, but, but dwelling together in unity unity. And Jesus, the, the, the God promises right here uh, purity. They'll no longer defile themselves. Cleansing, I'll cleanse them. And a relationship, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now this process of purification 
envisioned two actions that God himself would carry out. Yahweh will rescue the Israelites or God will rescue the Israelites from their apostasies and from sins enslaving power and he will purify them. This, the verb recalls, purify here, recalls chapter 36, verse 25 to 28, which offers a fuller explanation and description of that cleansing process. Look, look at Ezekiel 36, 25 to 28. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. See, this is part of the new covenant. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. I tell you what I'm going to do before the next time we meet. Not meeting next Wednesday or the next Wednesday, but that next Wednesday. I'm going to count up from chapter 36 to where we'll start next week. The number of times that God talks about giving the nation of Israel the land. I'm going to count it up. Because it is an astronomical number. Now remember, any time that God repeats things over and over again, he does it for emphasis sake. He does it to make sure that we get it. Okay, now we live in a country, we live in a world that says that land belongs to, to, to the Palestinians, that the, the Jews are occupiers. Listen, I want to remind you, there has never been a nation of Palestine. Never in human history has there been a nation of Palestine. Do you realize that God, let's take Gaza. In 2005, Ariel Sharon brought all of the Jews out of Gaza. There, listen, before this happened, before this terrorist attack happened, there was not a single Jew in Gaza. There was not a single Jewish soldier in Gaza. There was not a single government leader from Israel in Gaza. Gaza was totally under the control of, of the Palestinian people. They elected as their government Hamas, a terrorist group. And we see what's happened as a result. Now, look at Look what John MacArthur pointed out. He made three, he said that God made three promises that summarize his future plans for Israel. Restoration, unification, and purification. Restoration, unification, and purification. Now those are important little points for you to remember. Now let's look. I, I love this next part, Ezekiel 37, 24 to 28. My servant David will be king over them. You know what amazed me? When I began to dig into this, I began to study commentaries, I found out that there, that there are, are several New Testament or Old Testament scholars who believe that this is a reference to the actual David, King David actually ruling 
over the covenant people of God in the last days. And I thought, I don't know if I believe that. And then I started digging some more. And I discovered something. I'll get to that in just a moment. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I, there it is again. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Now, is he talking about King David or is he talking about somebody else? Verse 26, I'll make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now let's, let's just think just a moment. David, my servant, shall be king over them. Well, look. If you take your Bible and you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 16, and you read about the Davidic covenant, you will discover that the reference in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 16, is not that the actual King David who ruled uh, with, uh, with, with power, who, who defeated Goliath, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the heir to David's throne. And who, who is the heir to David's throne? The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was from the same tribe, the tribe of what? Judah. Okay. So if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 116, it's very clear that the reference here is to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, David himself prophesied in Psalm 110. Take your Bible. Just flip back to Psalm 110 just a moment. Psalm 110, written by David, verses 1 to 7. Look at it. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right. In other words, God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among many nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, who's he talking about? David himself is prophesying about King Jesus, who will be prophet, priest and king, right? Now, 
in chapter David, my servant, shall be king over them. They, they shall all have one shepherd. So this is, king, this is King Jesus right here. A quick survey of the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 16, Psalm 110, 1 through 7, identifies for us who he's talking about. It's Jesus. And then verse 25, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant. And look, it says here, Jacob, my servant, means the 12 tribes, the 12 tribes, all 12 of them. And the land that was given to them was a whole land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants. And he says in verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So where will he place them? Where will he place them? He'll place them in Israel. Listen, when Jews are repatriating back, they are repatriating back to Israel, the land of Israel. And the Lord promises a covenant of peace. MacArthur in his study Bible adds that these promises bring together the Abrahamic covenant, covenant in Genesis 12, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. It brings all three of them together and ties them together in a real pretty bow and knot, I promise you. And I've got some verses here you can look up later. God seems to describe the new covenant as both a covenant of peace and an everlasting covenant. Now, look at verse 27 and 28. My dwelling place also will be among them, will be with them. I will be their God, they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Do you know that the Bible prophesies that God is going to make sure there is a third temple? There's going to be a temple in Israel. In chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel, that temple is described in detail. I mean in detail. You say, why will there be a temple? Well, think about this. When you study the book of Revelation and you read about the Antichrist, what is the Antichrist going to do? He's going to make a covenant of peace with the Jewish people. And for three and a half years, he's going to keep it. At the end of three and a half years, he's going to break it. And it's going to be anti-Semitism off the charts, okay? And he's going into the temple. Now, how can you go into a temple there in Jerusalem if there's not a temple? So there's going to be a temple built there in Israel. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know that on the Temple Mount right now, there is a Muslim mosque, okay? And it's so interesting. You come up on this, this holy, it just feels like such a holy piece of ground, and there's a Muslim mosque. I've often asked myself, how in the world is this temple going to be built when there's a Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount? Do you know who controls and governs the Temple Mount? It's not Israel. It's Jordan. 
Jordan controls and governs what happens on the Temple Mount. Today, right now, today. So how in the world is somehow that temple going to be built on the Temple Mount where there's a Muslim mosque? You want to know the answer? I don't have a clue. I don't, I honestly, I don't have a clue. But you want to know what? I, I believe it's going to happen. You know why I believe it's going to happen? Because God says it's going to happen. Now, look, last night we had a Discover CFBC dinner. And those, in those Discover CFBC dinners, we always talk about our core values. And one of the core values that I really drive home is the, the core value that the Bible is our final source for faith and practice. I don't have to have all the answers because I know somebody who does have all the answers. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got all the answers. He knows exactly how it's going to play out. And I trust him to do exactly what he promises to do. But the Bible says right here in Ezekiel 37 that God is going to put a temple, a a a, a, um, a, a sanctuary right there in Israel, and he's going to be with the people. Now, look at this. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers live, and they will live on it. They and their sons are sons forever. David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Now, look at this. God's future plans for the nation of Israel involves their ancestral land, and it involves a temple. Do you know what the Antichrist is going to do in that temple? At the end of three and a half years, he's going to go into that temple, and he's going to claim to be God. And he's going to demand that the people of the world worship him. And the Bible says that there's going to be a temple during the millennial reign of Christ. You know, the Bible says that Jesus is going to reign on the earth for a thousand years, called the millennial reign of Christ. And there's going to be a temple right there in Jerusalem, not New York City, not San Francisco, not Sydney, Australia, not London, uh, England, not, not Paris, France. It's going to be right there in Jerusalem. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. We've talked about that. My dwelling place also will be with them, verse 27 and 28. I will be their God. They will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Remember, we've talked about that. That appears about 84 times in the book of Ezekiel. And they will know that I am the Lord God who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Now, I've included here 13 promises that God made to Israel in chapter 37, verse 21 to 28. 13 promises. Number one, God will personally find Israel among the nations and gather the people from among the nations. Number two, God will bring them again into their land and, they will, and it will be restored to them. Well, we saw that happen in 1948. 
I'm telling you what happened in 1948 is one of the most important prophetic signs that has ever occurred since the time of Jesus, okay? Number three, God will make one nation of the two that have been in the land. That's the two sticks, remember, made into one. God will set one king over the nation. It's not going to be King David of Philistine heroics. It's going to be King Jesus, right? King Jesus. God will ensure the unity of the restored kingdom that will never again be divided, never again. God will ensure that the people will never again serve idols. God will save them, cleanse them, establish an intimate personal relationship with them. God will enable them to walk in obedience to his law. God will establish them in their land forever. God will establish his new covenant of peace with them. And God will multiply them in the land and they will enjoy prosperity with peace. And God will establish his sanctuary among them and personally dwell there forever. And God will make Israel, look at this. This last one is important. God will make Israel a testimony to the nations of his saving grace. You know, as we've studied Ezekiel 36 and 37, we've seen how desolate and broken Israel was, right? A valley of dry bones. We've seen how God supernaturally brought them back together, brought them back into their land. Again, May 14th, 1948, very important prophetic sign for us. And we see how God is just bringing the Jewish people back to the land from 650,000 in 1948 to over 7 million right now. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Ladies and gentlemen, God keeps his word. He keeps his word. And it's very important that we know his word so that we can know what's coming and what to expect and how to get ready for it. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Now, I'm telling you, when we start back after two weeks off, we're going to get into some really interesting stuff. The War of Gog and Magog. You've heard about it all your life. Well, you've got to come here and get some ice cream and make sure that you understand what the War of Gog and Magog is all about, okay? And who's involved? Who are the nations that are going to be involved in this salacious attack upon Israel in the last days? Give you a hint. Russia's going to be one of them. Russia's going to be one of them. And you know what the Bible says? I'll give you another hint. The Bible says that no nation will stand with Israel in that day. You know what that means? That means America will not be standing with Israel in that day. I'll give you another hint. But God will be standing with them. Now, that's all the hints I'm giving you, okay? You've got to come back. Are you ready for this? You've got to come back for the rest of the story. Now, if there were young people in here, they wouldn't have a clue what I was just talking about. The rest of the story. Hey, thank you for being here tonight. I hope and pray that you're enjoying this study. 
And we're, I'm telling you, it's going to get real interesting, all right? And, and by the way, you know what I do every day? Man, every morning I get up and I want to know what happened in Israel while I was asleep. You know why? Because what happens in Israel is a key for us to understand what God's up to prophetically in our world today. You know what the Bible prophesies in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 17, I think? The Bible prophesies that one day we're going to wake up and Damascus, Syria is going to be wiped off the map. It's not going to be there anymore. You know, you know what I do when I get up in the morning? I want to make. I, I want to see if Damascus is still there. I'm, God says it's not going to be there one day. Read Isaiah 17. Pastor, do you really believe that? Damascus, Syria is going to be destroyed. I do believe that because God prophesies it. See, I believe prophecy. I believe the Word of God. I'll tell you, that's the safest place to be. Let me pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you have laid all these prophecies out in the Bible. And I thank you, Lord, if we'll just dig a little bit, and if we'll apply ourselves, we can understand some of the things that are going to take place in our world in the future. And, Lord, it'll help us to be ready. And we want to be ready when you come, Lord Jesus. Please help us to be ready. Please don't let us be so tied up with this world system that we ignore the things of God and we push prophecy aside as if we don't need it. Oh, God, give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger to study prophecy and understand it and apply it to our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.